0: Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy.
0: Greetings from Mexico City. It's a beautiful day here.
1: Yeah, that's great. We've got our guest in Dallas. We've got you in Mexico City and me in London, a global, global podcast, truly, in that sense. And I think our, our guest, maybe our only American citizen, too, but... We won't go there. Yeah, I'm, a,
0: I'm, I'm an American citizen.
1: <laughs> oh, you are? Okay, good. I'm one of those green card people. It was uh, funny when they used to call it resident alien and my kids were young. I would go, look, your dad really is an alien. He's got an official card. <laughs> that would freak them out. Yeah. Um. So let me introduce our guest this week, who's been a longtime friend and partner in the conscious capitalism movement, almost right from the beginning. And is now on the board of conscious capitalism, Sunny Vanderbeck. Sonny, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Sunny Vanderbeck, a co-founder and managing partner of the investment firm Satori Capital. Their mission to create, fund, and inspire businesses that elevate humanity. That just indicates that Sunny has been a long time member of the conscious capitalism community. And he's actually now on the conscious capitalism board. He's been with us almost from the beginning. In his work as an investor, he draws from a wealth of entrepreneurial experience, having led a business data return to a $3 billion market cap, became one of the youngest CEOs of a NASDAQ company, and then he had the rare opportunity and, dare I say, hard lessons learned of selling his business twice, buying it back in between. Beyond that, he served as a section leader in the US Army 2nd Ranger Battalion, which means he's... In the special ops category, and he led a team at Microsoft. He speaks to a wide variety of audiences, has longstanding involvement with YPO, the Young President's Organization, and spends a lot of time talking to people and businesses about conscious capitalism. He lives in Dallas. Welcome, Sonny. Glad to be here. So, the other thing that Sonny is well known for is writing a best selling book called Selling Without Selling Out. How to Sell Your Business Without Selling Your Soul. Now, that pre- premise of that is that business people have souls and they're going to hold on to them when they sell their business. Sonny, tell us a little bit about that. Saving the soul when you sell the business. How did you get to that
2: space? We had this experience, um, well, first with with my own business. Um, I had the, the opportunity to sell it um, and I, I kind of did it the normal way. I, you know, hired a bunch of smart advisors that all knew what they were doing and they had done a bunch of transactions. Um, And I, I think in an effort to be a good founder, tried to listen to my advisors um, and actually take their, their guidance and advice. And so we sold the business and I figured out probably about 90 days after the transaction closed, um, this was horrible like what have we done to ourselves who are these people like it it didn't occur to me um that there was a different way to run a business other than in a conscious way it was just an instinctive way of making sense or there was nothing you know at the time um oh this is probably 2001 era there wasn't a book to go read to say oh this is how one does it so i just learned it because it's how i thought one should run a business um long story short, the company we sold it to was not like us at all. Um, it was bad. Uh, but I got super lucky. The company we sold to, and and by the way, for context, like I stayed on to run a combined business unit. So I was still going there every day and, you know, had brought my team into this environment. Um, they filed for chapter 11 within 12 months of buying our company. So it was a really wild experience. And we, we were making money. Um, Shocking that one could actually be profitable in, you know, dot com era technology business, but it was it was profitable when we combined the the two businesses. Uh, so our business was profitable. The rest of the business had some significant challenges. It files for Chapter 11 and they go to sell the parts off. Um, and mm. so I get a shot at um, at doing it all over again. Uh, so so that was sort of the beginning of the journey for the book I actually started, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and asking this question, uh, ultimately, that comes down to this. It, like mm. We all talk about value. And you hear this value word a lot. And, and in the context of a transaction, value is used as a euphemism for money. Like If you mean money, just say money, because value is something else. So what I learned was, was, you have to figure out what you care about, and who you care about, and understand it well enough to write it down. And if you can do that, as you go into a transaction, you can look and see if that's what you're going to get. If mm-hmm. you don't do that, everyone around you is going to optimize for money, and certainly, you know, returns for shareholders and money is it's an important thing in a transaction. It's also not the only thing. And I got a quick mm-hmm. question for you. Um, if if you own a business, this question became the clarifying question for me. If you have two acquirers. And they're the same in, in all respects, but one. One of them is going to fire everyone the day after close. How much more does that acquirer have to pay? Now, For many of us, the answer is no. And you're like, wait, I ask you a, a number question. You know, essay answer, but the answer is no. Like, I just won't do that. Um, for most of the rest of us, um, the number ultimately, I like I've watched, I've been through this with CEOs. They calculate the number based on how much money they would give to the team. And so they arrive at these numbers. And they're like, "Well, gosh, I guess if I could give everybody three years of salary, maybe." Um, mm. This this visceral response from CEOs, even CEOs outside of conscious capitalism, um, w- w- was very instructive for me to sort of realize. Look, we as CEOs do actually care about things besides money, uh, particularly when we're a founder of the business. It's a family business, or, or what I call the modern founder. Um, where you've got a 100-year-old business, somebody came in 20 years ago and sort of re-energized it, and they're the modern founder. We do, in fact, have emotional attachments to these businesses, Mm -hmm. and we do care about things beyond just our um, shareholders. And so this process is, is actually kind of straightforward. Who do you care about? What do you want for them? And if you can figure those things out, then you'll know how to find somebody that's a really good fit.
1: Well, I love in the book, one of the things you highlight, Sonny, is that, um, the most important day in all of that isn't the day of the transaction. It's the day after, like, how do you feel the day after you've closed the deal and you've sold your baby and it's forever? It's not like, you know, not everybody gets a second bite at the apple as you did, but it's now forever. Say a little bit about how you use that is also a sort of a focusing idea. how are you gonna feel the day after the transaction? the idea there um so this comes to the other scary part like wh- wh- what do you want for yourself and
2: your family um uh, my experience is that as CEOs we often subsume our own needs um, and our family's needs almost instinctively like we're, we're so busy caring for so many stakeholders. Um, that we often ignore our own needs, and like tactically, you know, ask your mm-hmm. friendly CEO um, when was the last time they forgot to eat. It happens, it happens a lot. Like I've learned for me, if I don't have structure in my day, I- I'll probably forget to eat. I'm engaged, I'm busy, I've got stuff I'm doing. It's interesting. So part of the process is actually reflecting on what is it that you want for yourself. And what is it that you want for your family? And, and I'll give you two examples. Um, and part of what we did for the book is we went interviewed a bunch of CEOs that had been through a transaction, so they got to see before and after. Um, and you get these, you know, outcomes like somebody sold to a strategic and didn't really realize that you know Big Co was going to show up with all their Big Co stuff and make them do Big Co things, and now you know. Let's say they used to be able to go to all their kids' events, and now actually to do the job, they have to go to headquarters in Chicago two times a month, and they're gone. And they've never had that ever in their life. Well, you should have asked. Hmm. You figure out what it is that you want. And for some people, they're completely lit up. It's a whole new environment. It's new people. It's new opportunities, new ideas. And for other people, it's horrible. So none of these things are good or bad. Just about getting calibrated with what you want. Um, on the other end, I can tell you your last day at the office is a weird day. Like I, I remember that day, and probably always will. So the second time we sold um, data return, we sold to a strategic, um, and it was clear there was no role for me. And and I had been a good bit inspired by um, conscious capitalism and the opportunity to create an investment firm that focused on that. Um, so I, I had somewhere I was going and something else to do at that point, um, yep. and and I had a a you know transition term. I forget if it was you know ninety days or a year. Um, and about thirty days in, the acquirer was like, "We don't need you." <laughs> and that that one's like that one wasn't really like a you know heart stab. It, it was a little weird. I'm like, well, "I've never heard that before," but okay. Um, it was when I packed up all my stuff, hmm. and it was my last day like how do you behave on your last day when you're the founder of the place i don't know what to do mm-hmm. um so understanding what it is that you want um is for for you and for yourself really makes a difference on the day after the transaction like if you can get to a place where you realize wow my team is in a great place huge opportunity for them they're excited and motivated um another clarifying question for for me by the way is how's this going to turn out for my customers? This is an easy question to ask and and you can find out. Um, But part of what you have to do for all of this is you have to ask hard questions. You have to be willing to ask questions that feel a little bit uncomfortable. And if you have an investment banker, I promise you the good questions will get you a talking to. Like show up in a meeting and look at a buyer and ask him a crazy question like, why do you want to buy our company? And what Mm -hmm. are you going to do with it? Yeah. Everybody squirms. Those are the questions that matter a lot.
0: Uh, let's talk about Satori now. Um, first of all, the origin of that that name, why you chose to call it that, and then how you define uh, the business model and uh, how how well it's worked. You've had that for about a dozen years now or more, I think.
2: Yeah. So the, the origin of the name, um, Randy Eisenman is my co-founder, and and we knew each other for many years uh, prior to the founding of Satori. And Uh, For lack of a better way to describe it, business dated for years. If you ever meet somebody and you're like, wow, there's something there and I don't even know what we're going to do, but let's just spend some time together and see what comes out of this. Um, So we spent time together every week for years. Um, Mm. What emerged out of that was the idea for Satori Capital, this idea that um, what if we could be the investor that we wanted to have in our business that didn't exist in the world? What if you could have an investor that had some experience actually leading a business and had a long-term time horizon um, and that cared about things like culture in a business? Uh, Today, some of those ideas are not as crazy. I promise you, in 2008, in the teeth of the financial crisis, when people are scared and saying, well, maybe it's the end of the U.S. dollar and I should buy gold and hoard food, uh, not everybody wanted to hear about long-term thinking. Um, and you know, perhaps we'll hold an investment for one or two decades. Uh, so so that was the sort of genesis of the business. And we had to run the place with no name for a year and a half because we knew the name was going to matter a lot. And we just kept trying and just kept trying and never quite found it. and and so this email thread that was, you know, more than a year old, sort of back and forth, um often every week hunting for the name. And finally, one day, Randy is reading a book. Um, that hits on the concept of Satori, which is the moment of enlightenment. It's the feeling of aha. And he emails me and I had nothing else to say, but yes, it's perfect. Uh, (laughs) So it was, we had our own Satori moment in the hunt for the name. Uh, When we found it, it was most definitely the one for us.
0: And and then so tell us about uh, your, some of your first investments, uh, how that worked out, uh, what what's been the experience like? Fifteen years, I guess, it's been now.
2: It has, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I, for many years, identified as uh, a CEO who has is now an investor, um, and I've been an investor longer than I was a CEO, um, and so now need to identify as an investor who used to be a CEO. Um, so that that journey in and of itself has been been fascinating. Um, it's It's been a good run so far. One of the important early Satori moments was this realization that the world is filled with unconscious, conscious capitalists. And, and let me unpack that. Like, here's what I mean. I meet people every day that don't use the conscious capitalism words, but they sure live it. And that has really given me a big shot of energy of like, like we're everywhere. Mm -hmm. It it turns out that the by and large, um, the media coverage of CEOs and company behavior and so forth um, is negative. And it's for one of two reasons. One, like you get more clicks. Like if you write an ugly headline then you get more clicks. So we get more of that. And two, a lot of what gets covered are, you know, the the world's largest 500 or 1,000 companies. Uh, one of the things we noticed, though, was that, that those companies, more often than not, are not conscious capitalists. But either overtly or covertly, that the behavior sets there um, are very inconsistent with, with our values and what we think is good for the world. Um, so to see this everywhere is really neat. We thought we'd find it in pockets and emerging thinkers and blah, blah, blah. Nah, I can go to a small town in Iowa and talk to the family that owns the largest company in the town and they're conscious capitalists. When you ask them, like, what, what's going on here? Why are you doing this? They'll say things like, well, I have breakfast with my suppliers at the you know local pit grill or Dairy Queen or what have you. I see my employees at church on the weekends and the river that runs past our plant, uh, then its next stop is my cousin's ranch. Why would I do anything terrible in this ecosystem? Like they get to live with the consequences of their actions because they live in a smaller ecosystem. And so they can see it. Uh, so one, one of the questions we've learned to ask is um, if your family name was on the door and you could never sell the company, how would you behave? What decisions would you make? Uh, becomes a good indicator for conscious capitalism. Uh, So to your original question, like, Hey, how's it going? Um, It's going pretty well. You know, I I can't talk about returns in this kind of context. Uh, What I can suggest is, you know, we're now probably a billion three of capital. Um, And so what in the first five years was, was pretty rough. Um, Mm -hmm. So you can imagine I'm running around talking about new investment ideas and what about culture and what if we never sold it and all those like crazy questions. And, and I promise you for the investment community, those are crazy questions. We don't talk about that stuff. Uh, it, it was a bit of a slow go um, in the early days, but Randy and I were extraordinarily committed to this. And we got an, you know, an early team of people who, even though we really didn't have much capital and only had a couple of investments um, I think saw what we saw. Um, and joined us and help us build it into what it is today. Um, So today we have four businesses. One is a private equity stage business. It invests in um, companies that are uh, typically 30 or 40 million in revenue, up to about 500 million in revenue, uh, both majority or minority investor. Um, We've got an alternatives platform that, that has real estate funds and venture and hedge funds and so forth um, for investors that are trying to build a more endowment style approach to their own investing. um, We've got a hedge fund that focuses on the renewable space. So that's solar energy, wind, batteries, and so forth. That's a long short hedge fund. Um, And then our most recent business um, is a venture stage business that does neurotechnology and clinical psychedelics. Um, so pretty broad scope at this point, but you know it's been 15 years, and um, so we've got these extraordinary leaders that lead each of these businesses, um, and we're I think we're really having a lot of fun. We're clear on message, we're trying to make the world a little better place. Uh, I will say one one thing that popped out of the private equity business that was unexpected. Mm. It's this idea of Maslow's hierarchy of needs in in business. Um, and and I'll unpack that a little bit just with an example. Um, like if you can't figure out cash flow, cash flow is kind of like oxygen in in a business. It's hard to work on your culture if you're not profitable. It's hard to work on your culture if you don't know if you can make payroll. Um, like those kinds of questions. Um, it's hard to drive change to make the company better if you don't have a management infrastructure and a way to document like well how is it in fact that we're going to change and where are we trying to go so i will say one of the unexpected things for me um is that conscious capitalism can be harder than it would seem at first glance because there's a lot of pre-work you have to do you have to lay a foundation and you know build walls and put a roof on it and there there are things that um must be done to be a platform for can I be in a, a best place to work or build a great partnership with a supplier or so forth and and that's you know one of the reasons we chose early on to focus on uh, later stage businesses that that have you know a good bit of profit I think our minimum profit is you know eight million a year in a company now is because they're more likely to have some of that infrastructure built and some of those bones there uh, but this this stuff is hard and there are a lot of other priorities day to day too. Um, and so you're mm-hmm. often adding new priorities, which means like this stuff can't be an overlay. Um, if you all remember the old, you know, CSR, corporate social responsibility, um, that thing was kind of an overlay, um, which mm-hmm. also meant it was it also ran when things got tough, it got chopped, right? It had lots of issues. Um, and, and part of what we've learned is like conscious capitalism It to get it right. It's not an overlay. It's not a thing we do to make us look cool or feel better, you have to figure out how to really integrate it with strategy, which means mm. you have to be clear about your stakeholders and what you want for them. If you run around willy-nilly and just go, well, we're gonna make it better for you know random stakeholder X, um, mm. that is either gonna be sort of strategic and useful and drive the business forward and help other stakeholders, or it's just gonna be an add-on, some like nice thing you're doing because it feels yeah. good. Um, yeah. part of the advice is like the, the nice, cause it feels good. That stuff falls away when it gets hard. So make yeah. sure it's integrated with your strategy.
1: Well, I, I love that. And I think that, uh, you know, Raj and I often comment, you know, conscious capitalism isn't an excuse for not having a good strategy and having a good operating model. If you don't have a good operating model and you don't have a good strategy, conscious capitalism is not going to save you, you know, you can do all of that other stuff, but. It, But it's almost like the difference between being a good business and becoming a great business and that difference, that delta, is this ability to take the the conscious capitalism tenets and, as you say, integrate it. Because I think one of the first things that that often happens when we start talking about conscious capitalism is what we call the alignment phase. The, The first phase is alignment. How aligned is this idea of conscious capitalism with your strategy? with your current culture, with your current business model. And if we don't have that discussion that, you know, it's not an overlay, it's got to be embedded in those things, and we're not aligned on that, then it's going to be really difficult to come up with a a roadmap to to quote-unquote conscious capitalism. So really want to double down on what you said about how it just can't be something on the side. It's got to be built off of the core. Now, this raises a really interesting question, which is, you know, when we started the movement 15 years ago and Randy was there at the beginning with us and, um, you know, we had this objective in a sense that we're going to change some of those 500 to a thousand big businesses that you were talking about, but for all of the reasons about this alignment and getting this to be something embedded in their DNA, it's so hard. You know, when you're a 200 or a hundred million and you've got Two thousand people or five thousand people—that's one order of magnitude of change. But boy, does it get hard when you've got you know thirty thousand or forty thousand spread across the globe. And I'm wondering, you know, have you know on a scale of you know some people like you say we're already sort of there, and some of them are you know they're just beginning the journey. How has it been for you with the investments where? they're just beginning the journey. So in a sense, there could be a lot of upside if you get it right. Um, but they're just in the early stages. How have you treated that differently than somebody who you came in with and said, oh, we're aligned right from the beginning? Yeah, I would say that the so so first off, um, if they're allergic to
2: it, we're not investing. Yeah. Yeah. Just as, a, as a starting place. Yeah. What I find more often than not, the pattern looks like this. Um, on the the individual decisions, you often will find conscious behavior um, and you'll find a stakeholder or two where they've put some energy on that one. And it feels like at least the beginnings of conscious behavior. Um, and, and I'll give you a, an example, actually, from my own business. Um, at, at Data Return, I think we were extraordinary with culture it was a tier one focus for the whole leadership team we talked you know it was every day day in and day out it was definitely core to who we were um and I think we were the same way for with customers as well it was sort of relentless focus there. I don't think it was very fun to be one of our suppliers. you had this sort of army of brilliant people um, that were on a mission and part of that mission, was to you know reduce price on supplier inputs um, with with very little thought of like what does this mean for them? Like maybe they say yes and they're saying yes to something that's going to end up hurting them, you know structurally. Um, so we were we were not very good with our suppliers huh. But as I started to use this this idea of stakeholders, say, well, let's just like kind of look at the other stakeholders and think about them too um, a couple of things emerged. So one, um, yeah, actually cut for us, customers and employees were priority stakeholders. And and one of the things that I think is a deeply important in conscious capitalism is all stakeholders are not created equal. Every business has different prioritizations. This is not, you know, everybody gets a a cupcake. Um, This you do actually have to make some choices about prioritization. So I think our what we see is often one or two stakeholders where they're doing a great job and if we can introduce this idea so here's my transition moment think about what you get for having a great culture right and you sort of unpack that and talk about that and reflect on it and you say well what if you had that same kind of relationship with a supplier could that be valuable to your ecosystem maybe so it's, it's less about saying, well, follow my model. And like, no one wants to hear about smart guy models. Myself, I can draw it on the whiteboard. i like, that's good for you. But it doesn't really inspire action. The let's connect this to the results you see in your team. What if you had that same kind of relationship with a supplier? Quickly, we see the light bulb goes off. They go, oh, that's what happened for me. I'm Part of the reason I use that example, Like that was my journey. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, we, we could be in partnership with our suppliers and and not have it be a you know win-lose mm. mindset how do we have a win-win mindset um and so we've seen some extraordinary outcomes in our portfolio company just as an example on the supplier front um we had one that uh, i'll be, be brief with the story they bought out 50 million a year worth of steel now when you buy steel it is it's a commodity buy it's literally a commodity uh, which means your you know, price and timing of when you can get it are kind of all that matters. Uh, and long story short, they figured out that one of their steel suppliers had a strategy to do more value add, And what that means is they get to do something to the steel before they send it to you instead of just a plate. Well, our company was faced with buying a piece of equipment that was cost about two times their annual profit. Hmm. Got in conversation with the supplier. The end result was the supplier bought the equipment, which was great. They had a low cost capital, big company. They were more than happy to to do it. We became their sort of launch customer for more value add. So we were supportive of their strategy. So we had all this capital we didn't have to deploy. Um, On top of that, though, and this is where the nuance is, because that's a bunch of spreadsheet stuff gets you to those answers. Here's the stuff you can't get in the spreadsheet. This industry... The intersection of when the products were most profitable was also the time at which the steel was hardest to get. Mm. So, if you have two customers and one of them is your partner and you get to do all all this extra work for them that's consistent with your strategy and where you're trying to go into your business, and the other one just says, Can I have a bigger discount, please? Guess who gets the steel? Mm. We did. So, this business grew from, I don't know, probably in the 60s of revenue in our first year to 225 million of revenue um in our final investing year and it was all organic growth in an industry that probably grew six percent every year um so so the journey is a little different for every company we have to be very mindful to our earlier conversation about prioritization if we show up and gen up a 47 item project plan for conscious capitalism it is going to fail that's not how this works at all um, so, you know, I I rarely use the word patient in the context of investing um, because I think patient is evocative of excuses for poor performance. Yeah. Uh, well, just be patient. It'll come eventually. Um, I tend to want to use long term um, as my euphemism here. And, and, and this, so this is one where um, it does take some long term thinking. You probably aren't going to see anything in the first year, sometimes the first two years. And then the momentum starts. And you start to see results and the objective is to get a self-sustaining system where the team is now scanning for opportunity that looks like sort of conscious outcomes win-win or win-win-win outcomes um, of their own accord because they've got they've actually personally experienced it somewhere in the business
0: so Sonny, you've been out there doing this and evangelizing for this mindset uh, and showing how it's done Are you seeing others in the industry uh, starting to follow that, emulate that? Is it a growing trend? Or do you still remain a pretty small niche in the overall investing world? This is certainly
2: not the predominant mindset in the investing world. Um, And there's, there's a structural issue there. And it's kind of a funny thing. So I gave a presentation at the first Conscious Capitalism Summit, which I think it was 2009, something like that 2008 at the crossings. Oh my gosh. Um, I remember the presentation. Well, um, the essence of the entire thing was this, the, the structures for capital in the Western world, um, are not very supportive of long-term thinking. Um, the, the mindset. So, so here's the chain briefly, an endowment or a pension fund, which have, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's most of the capital, but probably most, most of the capital for private equity, for sure. Uh, their time horizons are not that long. And so if they're used to investing in a, you know, private equity or a venture fund or something like that, that has a, a five-year holding period for individual investments, and you show up and you say, well, no, our time horizon is indefinite. We might not ever sell it. Um, now, our you know, economic interests are aligned to sort of optimize that outcome for you. Um, but it might be 13 years, it might be 23, can't tell you. Um, that system by and large is not designed to take risk um, because of where the decisions are made in the middle of the organization, which is not a risk bearing part of the organization. Um, so so it's tough that the source of capital for most investment firms does not like the idea of longer-term thinking. Um, And and one of the things we sort of didn't hit at the beginning of this, my belief is that the foundation of all of this is is long-term thinking. As soon as you extend your time horizon out, the behaviors in conscious capitalism, whether you use the language or not, they just emerge. It becomes self-evident. If you say, we are gonna be here for 50 years. Well, now you actually are literally thinking about generational issues um, in your business And so the conscious behaviors emerge when you've got that kind of time horizon. So one of our fundamental issues as an industry is that the majority of the capital available to professional investors doesn't care. They just don't care. It's not their thing. They don't want it. And it's a fight. Like I I actually often don't take meetings with those kinds of investors anymore because it's not a good use of anyone's time. Because they'll look at our returns and like, wow, that's exciting. And they'll look at our portfolio companies. Yeah, that's exciting. And then they'll look at our structure and the fact that, wait, they're like, wait, you can hold this forever? We're like, yeah, that's actually the foundation of our whole strategy. And they're like, well, we can't invest. I actually had somebody that um, ran a fund of funds. he was the founder of the fund of funds that after all these meetings told me, he says, I get it because all I do all day long is invest in your peers, competitors, what have you. I understand exactly why your strategy is organized the way it is. And I love it my funds cannot invest in what you do because we have this time horizon problem with our customers. He goes, now my personal money, I'm giving it to you because I know why you're doing what you're doing. But my my professional capital, I can't do it. Very fascinating to watch that. So, so I wanted to get this sort of backdrop that the nature of how capital flows in professional investing um, is that most of the capital is from people who don't want to, don't care, or can't invest for a longer horizon. So that makes all this stuff harder. Um, with that said, to your point about are we starting to see more emerge, I would say yes. It's it's still very small. Um, and, and I think I have to be and we have to be careful about this, you know, ideological purity idea that one way is the best. And, mm. and so when I look at Conscious capitalism for me is the best approach that it, it gives you the tools to actually build long-term, you know, structures and infrastructure. It's not an overlay. Uh, but there are, we have cousins out there in the world doing it a different way. And I, I am not actually attached to that. Like if you are trying to leave it better than you've found it, should I get stirred up about the way you're going to do it? Um, and, and I'll give you an example in general. Um, I have a little bit of an allergic reaction to three letter acronym because generally when I see three letter acronym, I'm like, here comes the spreadsheet and a bunch of metrics and CEO jobs are not spreadsheet jobs. Like this stuff's hard. It's all this gray. And so I view that those often as limiting structures, but that's for me. Like I don't, it, so if somebody is doing something that is moving the world forward and is leaving it a better than they found it? i don't like, who am I to say, well, my way is right and you should do it my way? Gosh, at least they care a little bit. So I'll give you an example. Um, if, if an investment firm were to never, ever talk about conscious capitalism, but they did deep work on culture, I just ask the question, is the world better off because that fund exists versus the generic version of that that wants to talk, talk about accounts payable and a bunch of just sort of financial engineering nonsense. Um, yeah. So I'm happy to see the emergence of an ecosystem and to have cousins that are trying it a different way um, that have different priorities that I may not agree with. Like, that's okay. Like, I don't need to agree with this. I just want them to give a damn. And if you can get just that little bit, then we start to move the world forward. If we start to care just a little bit about more than just money stuff, um, it's getting better. And so I'm seeing more and more. It gets a little better here, a little better there. And I'm very happy about that. <clears throat> One last comment on this train. Um, like we know the work we're doing is generational in scope. Like part of me is mad. We've been at this mm. for 15 years, and it feels like the world's barely moved, just a little tiny bit. Yeah, man, what did you expect? Like to walk in with your cool, clever thing you thought of and have everybody go, well, that sounds like a better idea than what I'm doing now. I'm going to change everything. Like that's not actually how the world works. This stuff is hard. So, you know, call me in a decade. I'll still be saying the same stuff. I'll still be grinding, hunting for, okay, well, what if another hundred are starting to care? Um, I do think we'll see some generational shift that will help. Um, you know the Gen Xers, as, as a sort of age category, are by and large um, becoming decision makers more and more. In my own experiences, that we we tend to have a slightly different view. Uh, so it takes a lot a lot of patience and long term thinking both to see this emerge. I'll know we have been successful when the things that make us different aren't different anymore. I want to wake up one day and walk into a meeting with a potential investor or a portfolio company and go through our spiel and they go, "Well, good for you. Everybody does that. Now I can retire." When everybody does this, my work's done. Okay, we won because we're no longer differentiated and everybody's actually trying to make the world a little bit better than they found it.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: I, I think we've that. said that we've said that about conscious capitalism, right? That at some point this becomes the the default way of thinking then yeah, I think our work is done. You know, we had Pete Stavros of KKR on the podcast uh, a few months ago. And the whole idea of employee ownership and how broadly they have bought into that and they've, I think, made it a requirement for every company in their portfolio. And in fact, set up a non-profit called Ownership Works that is trying to spread that idea. So employee ownership as a critical element in aligning stakeholders and, and creating wide widespread prosperity. And of course, as with all of these things in conscious capitalism, it has benefits for the, uh, for, you know, in terms of returns. Uh, these companies do better as their employees are doing better. Is that something you've thought about? Have you adopted that in your uh, portfolio? Are you encouraging that in the companies that you invest in? We
2: are. Um, I think the, well, let me go back to the beginning. Um, the idea at data return that everybody had ownership was not like, I started this thing in 1996. A little bit of crazy talk. We're like, "You did what?" Um, but that's just what we wanted to do, and it's it's what we do at Satori as well. Um, so, so that one was it started not from a you know, look how smart I am. I can figure out the ecosystem. And I was like, "Why shouldn't we share this with everyone?" Um, along the way, I think I, I learned some some nuance about where where to prioritize it. Um, so my starting place is um, I want everybody to participate in the success of the business why not like of course you do like how cool is that Um, and it's right time right place right situation sometimes that's the priority sometimes it's not the priority the nature of the workforce may drive it it's it's sort of a who knows Um, so I view that as a a tool in the toolbox for the right companies in the right situation. Um, so as an example, our most recent investment um has an ESOP it, you know, 10% of the companies owned by the employees, which is extraordinary. Um, but to to put a precise point on it, um, what I don't want to see happen um is people just willy-nilly giving equity to employees without the infrastructure. This is one of those that actually does require some infrastructure for engaging with them as owners and teaching them about how to think about how the business works Um, and hiring teams that prefer that as well. You know, there are some teams that you can take them all the way through. Here's what ownership means for you. Here's how this fits. You know, here's how it's going to work. And here's what it means for you and how it gets shared with you. Um, both on an ongoing basis and a sort of profit-sharing mechanism, um, and at an eventual sale, and you can have five dollars of that, or fifty cents of, you know, annual pay, and that the nature of that workforce would prefer the short-term return, and often for good reason. Okay, like I'm not attached to it, so mm-hmm. so I think the uh, the implementation of equity ownership a hundred percent helps draw the time horizon out for everyone, which I, I think drawing a time horizon is always a good outcome mm-hmm. value to be created by doing that. Um, and it's a tool in the toolbox that I wish we could use more. Um, and I'm seeing it as it's sort of emerging. Um, so I'm very, very, happy that they're doing that and sort of raising the consciousness on that um, and, and doing it from, you know, I'll call it the top down, like in our industry, how much mm-hmm. they have, but it's a bunch. Um, And so when they walk into, you know, random pension fund and say, hey, we're doing this thing um, and it's working, that pension fund is now primed. They're likely to believe, you know, KKR on our fund 14 or some comically large number now. They're sort of likely to give them the benefit of the doubt that they've thought through it and it works. Um, And that can uh, make those same investors more receptive to an even more broad idea of, hey, what if I cared about other stakeholders and thought long term, mm. maybe I could get a better result. Like that's what's really going on. they're priming that channel in the brain for them to be ready for the next story of I cared about somebody else, I treated them like they cared about it, and I got a better result for all of the stakeholders. So I'm super glad they're doing that. Um, and I think it's a tool in the right time, right place um, and and I will draw one distinction, by the way, and this may be useful for um, the the listeners um an interim step on the journey to equity ownership for everyone um, is how do I tie the financial metrics of the business and the profit to pay such that when the company does well, the team is rewarded? Like that's your yeah. and that tends to be more of a one year time horizon. And so one of the ways to explore this, is to start to do something there first because you're going to learn a lot of things um, about you about yourself about your team about what what else might you need um, if you just rain money on people and you go oh, profit sharing here's a check and then a year goes by and you do it again that is not conscious capitalism it is not working it doesn't solve any of your problems um, and it just feels like largesse from the king like this is you going to be really careful with this idea of, well, the king just scattered money on us. That's not what you're trying to create, which means now there's some education that has to happen about how do profits get created and what's most important in the business. And you have to be willing to take time to do that. It's it's less complicated, it's a little easier to implement if you do it in the sort of one-year horizon. And that it's a good kind of shakedown run to figure out what. What do you need to know about your employees, where they are, what their priorities are? Um, and that might tell you how you move forward next. And I'll do one, one last nugget here. Um, there are some businesses where the right typical duration of the you know, average employees, like 18 months, two years, that there's something mm-hmm. about the nature of the business that it's going to be a more transient job. Um, I would suggest that That if a significant portion of your employee base is transient, that you should match your what's long term to the time horizon that they're going to be around. If I give, you know, a five year shot at equity for somebody who's only going to be around for 18 months anyway, because I don't know, it's a college job and they're going to move off at the end or what have you. um, I'm not doing anything. I might feel better about it and go, look, we gave equity opportunity for everybody, but they didn't care. And they never earned it anyway because they didn't stay around. So in that environment, perhaps a one-year horizon might be better. Alternatively, if you go to your, you know, walk out into one of your manufacturing plants, and half the people you see have been with the company for a decade, okay, like now, now you've got a team that um, has a is in a relationship with the company, um, and that that might be no. a situation where you're more likely to find um, what you're looking
1: for with equity ownership. And that was great, Sunny. Thank you. Um, you know, it raises an interesting question. You know, we've often thrown around within conscious capitalism, an organization can't be more conscious than the level of consciousness of the leadership. And I, I'm really curious as you go out and you're thinking about, do we replace the leadership team? Or is this leadership team capable? Not just, you know, that I'd like to, but are they capable of stepping into this kind of conscious capitalist journey and how do you handle that and and um and you know where do you find that pool of ceos that you have in your bench that you pull in because they're conscious ceos (laughs) yeah um i will start with this um the
2: the idea of a conscious capitalism turnaround is terrifying to me Mm. that one could walk into a company that wasn't showing meaningful signs of consciousness and transform it to be a conscious business that like that's not for me maybe somebody else wants to do that um but i can't imagine a harder task than that Hmm. because an unconscious leader that's only focused on themselves guess who they hire people like them unconscious leaders that only focus (laughs) on themselves so, and, and we actually had a, we had an important moment in our journey. Um, we, we were looking at buying a business unit um, from a company, parent company was decidedly unconscious and, but the economics of the investment were extraordinary. We were like, this is amazing. Like everything was, you know, full throttle green, but the headquarters company was very Unconscious. Like they weren't just like they didn't do it, they were allergic to it. Um <laughs> we ended up passing on that investment. It was hard, like it was a grip the table kind of meeting where you're like, Are we really gonna do this? Mm. Gosh, are you sure? Like we did, we passed because the leader of that business is going to be like the leader of headquarters, and all of the people they hire are going to be like that. Now I'm using words like all and every. That's no, not no, true. No. But it's most so. So we tend to look for businesses where the owner or the CEO is going to stay with the business, and there are some signs of life in there. Again, they may not show up to the Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit every year, but the the who they are. So so I have this idea that if I can figure out who somebody cares about, I can kind of predict behavior. If it's clear to me that your circle of concern extends to the end of your shoes, I kind of know what you're going to do in most situations. Um, Alternatively, you can find stories. If you listen, you'll find stories in these companies that are conscious behavior. They're just, we're we're back to the unconscious, conscious capitalist. So the idea that we would acquire a company, throw out the CEO, bring in a new smart one, that's not what we do. We are in the business of supporting extraordinary businesses. How could we help them be the best version of themselves? Um, Can we be a good partner for them along the way on the journey? Um, It doesn't mean never. We occasionally will have a situation where um, the right thing is for the CEO to exit. Uh, But that's very rare. Generally, when somebody comes to us and says, I want to hand you the keys to my business, I would like a big check, please. We're out we don't do those those aren't exciting um those those CEOs are smarter than we are in that context and i've been there remember i was i was that guy before when someone wants to just hand you the keys mm. they don't know it consciously subconsciously they often know like hey this thing's hit its wall it's going to need a total retread it's about to get hard etc um so Our business is about being in partnership with CEOs and helping them accomplish their goals and help their company be better than it was when we got there and those kinds of things. So it's a little, little different for me. I don't envy anybody who has to do a conscious turnaround. Um, I guess if you were going to do it, the time and place to do it would be when the business is in the midst of a financial turnaround as well. Change is really, really hard. Um, And so to get, behavior change gosh the the time to do that is when you know in a turnaround like everything's on the table you get to say well i don't care how we used to do it we're not it did how'd that work out for you well it didn't so we're not doing it that way anymore like in in the midst of that sure otherwise like i don't even know if it's possible Mm -hmm. or it could take you know 10 years 15 years our assessment on this this potential investment that uh yeah We talked about earlier was that we were probably going to have to replace 70 to 80% of the leaders in the company, not just at the top, but all the way down. People hire people that are like them, that behave in the way they do, that have the same values or similar values. And we looked at it and said, there's no way this was not going to work. By the way, the punchline for the story is um, (laughs) like six (laughs) months later... They perp walked the CEO of the the headquarters oh. company for bank fraud. Why we dodged awesome. that bullet? Uh, <laughs> we, we were going to use the same brand. It was a, an important brand in the industry, and so we were going to carry on as sort of like a sub brand. So yeah. our brand would have been stuck to that immediate Ooh. sort of dissolution of the parent company, and like so, it's it's a good story. We dodged a giant bullet by thinking about the world through a conscious lens.
0: It's mm, quite a lesson in that, uh, Sunny. What do you think about this whole uh, what feels like a bit of a backlash happening out there against conscious capitalism? Right, people are using terms like woke capitalism and trying to dismiss all of this, and in a way, kind of return to the narrow focus purely on on the bottom line. Right? Um, do you think that's that's just sort of a minor blip, or do you feel like there's there's a bigger danger there, or do you see it as any kind of danger? This this you know? critique that seems to be emerging.
2: Yeah, I think it's an important question. Um, My armchair quarterback assessment of the backlash is a lot of it is on overlay stuff, not on deep strategy stuff. So I have never seen a backlash on conscious capitalism. I've just never seen it because conscious capitalism is by its very nature integrated with strategy and integrated with culture and um, you're making decisions to say, given all of my stakeholders, like what's the best decision here? Like that's like one of the big breakthroughs here is in this idea of um, decision making in the context of multiple stakeholders. Um, so my I don't know opinion, for lack of a better term, um, is that some of the decisions that get made are not made through the lens of how do we create extraordinary outcomes for multiple stakeholders they feel a little bit more like the spreadsheet thing. Um, And and I had a a conversation um, recently with a group of CEOs. Uh, And I think one of the things I said there is like, look, like if I need a checklist and a spreadsheet to not be a horrible human being or dump stuff in the river, I have other issues to solve. No three-letter acronym is going to change the bad humanness. Like who dumps stuff in the river? Like very serious? Like it, but I, you shouldn't need a spreadsheet to solve that. And so I think some of this is coming out of um spreadsheet focused, metrics focused, that are it's all like disconnected from the business. It doesn't drive the business forward. Um, <clears throat> so I'll give you an example. We got one of our our portfolio companies, um, is is a public company now, a company called LoveSack. Um uh, and That company is a pretty conscious business. Um, They never had a environmental sustainability program. Mm. We didn't have board meetings about it. We didn't have reports for it. And the company's very existence was changing the amount of furniture in the landfills. And one one day the CEO showed up to a board meeting and said, hey, by the way, it was nearly an offhand comment." we have replaced our entire input supply chain for fabric. It now comes from recycled plastic water bottles and we recycle more water bottles into our products every year than Nike does into theirs. And, you know, Nike was a leader in this space. Just FYI, next topic. He didn't didn't need a spreadsheet to say, wow, I need to go re-engineer my supply chain. He just went, gosh, I've got this opportunity to do this. And so guess what? Like customers like that. Not all customers care. Some of them do. Why did Sean do that? It was the right thing to do, but he didn't. So so the journey there was like, really? And I've actually seen this happen, play out multiple times where one of our portfolio companies, for one reason or another, is doing what they're going to do. And then there's an external pressure that says, well, you need a program and you need to measure it and hire some expensive consultants to tell you how to run your business. and. We need a big, pretty report with a glossy front on it. And those are really funny experiences because what we see in there is they go to measure and everybody's super sure they're going to give all this feedback and, oh, well, your hiring practices are terrible and whatever. And they get in there and they do the work and they get the report back and they're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Without having a program, this employee stakeholder is getting an extraordinary outcome. Without having a program it's one of the most environmentally friendly furniture companies on the planet, it, et cetera. And so again, we're sort of always circled back like conscious capitalism is a different thing. It's, it's structure, it's strategy, it's conscious leadership, like mm. conscious leaders make great choices in the absence of external pressure because their own decision-making engine is that yeah. it's the right thing to do. So I think some of the backlash comes from behavior that's disconnected from true needs and wants of the stakeholder i think it's a good idea and this will look good for us on the internet and blah 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 and it doesn't consider the depth of the needs of the stakeholder Um, and so i think that's causing some of the backlash but i actually don't see backlash from conscious capitalism i've I've been in conversations with people who are i don't know for lack of a better term or like um aggressively anti-woke and it's a thing for them. And it's like all they want to talk about and I talk, talk them through conscious capitalism. And they're like, well, why don't we do that? (laughs) Um, So I'm, I'm happy to be part of the journey that, you know, I think one of the the cool things about this, this conscious capitalism idea is like, there is not a affiliated political party with conscious capitalism. It's just not even really part of the conversation. We're still trying to actually make the world better Than it was. Um, And just so to see all these stories um, emerge in this huge diaspora of companies, uh, I get really excited. And when those companies decide to do, hey, okay, look, we need to measure. And and in the case of LoveSack, because public companies are getting um, external pressure to measure more, that ultimately they're like, yes, we need to do one of these sustainability report things. They didn't do it to do air cover. They just did it to highlight what they were already doing. Like, that's what I want to see. I want to see the companies that are doing the right thing when no one's watching. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I love that idea or that hope. And the one thing I will say when I get into this discussion, I I think I shared with you, I did a uh, uh, talk down in Palm Beach of all places on awake, not woke capitalism. And, you know, highlighted the awake capitalist is what you're talking about. But one of the questions really is, you know, um, there are some bad actors. There are some people who do put the, the stuff in the river. There are some people who, um, who won't do the right thing. And, um, and I think that the, the challenge is how to find a, a balance between this is how you become great and there's some minimally acceptable behavior. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like um, like you just can't go do that. You can't go down the street and poke somebody in the eye. It's not all out anymore. You know, you know. By and large,
2: I don't, and I'm going to use the term regulate loosely. um I think regulating good behavior is, you know, nearly impossible. um yeah. And there is some stuff that, like, hey, you just can't, you can't do that. Like, that's not well, the, b- regulating bad
1: behavior versus good behavior. Yeah. Slightly different flavor. Yeah.
2: So my hope is that over time, um, customers choose and employees choose, and we find our way into a world where the competition part of capitalism solves that problem for us. Um, We have a little structural in the bigger companies where um, this is not the time or place to talk about regulatory capture, um, but that it can generally reduce competition a little bit and maybe not let the most conscious version of the company yeah. um, emerge. But, but, but I agree with you. There's some behavior out there. It's like, you just can't do that. Um, and again, part of this is sort of passage of, of time, more and more people every day are sort of realizing what they care about and who yeah. they will be as humans and expressing that at work. Cause that's yeah. the other, like the, it's just business thing. Um, You kind of can't say that anymore like that that game's over now we do actually have to care um and little by little it's it's working it just doesn't go as fast as i want it to go i'm an entrepreneur i have no patience i'm like right now i want it now and hey this is a 20 30 40 year journey from here Um, what i'm most excited about is when we started this business we weren't even talking about this like now we're having an argument about argument about well, what's the right way to try to be a better human or a better company. Well, I'm glad we're arguing about that, not about whether Revlon and the only purpose of a business is to generate money and like all that stuff. Cool. We're past yeah. that. business has a role in the world beyond just being an ATM and everybody's in agreement on that and how we're going to go about doing it. I don't know. We're. Another 30 years, we'll know which the right way
1: was. I'm just glad people are trying. Ah, I love it, Sonny. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you for a very inspiring journey that you've been beside us on and been our partner in and for today's very broad and meaningful discussion. Sonny, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Great to see you both.
0: Yeah, thank you, Sunny. And, you know, you're you're like a quote machine. I mean, there's so many things <laughs> that you say that are like, wow, that should be treated. But uh, you know, I feel like the next book coming from you should be the definitive book on conscious investing. Because you know, it's much broader. You wrote a book about setting, but I think this is what you're doing is a much bigger uh, thing in the world. And I I hope that someday you will do that. I, I appreciate that. Yeah.
1: I'll Take the nudge. Thank you to our listeners. And if you enjoyed today's podcast on whatever channel you're listening to, please feel free to hit the subscriber button. And if you're over on Apple and iTunes, leave us a review. Raj and I are always eager to get your feedback on what you think about us. And thank you for Tech de Monterey and Tech Sounds for sponsoring and producing today's show. And we'll see you all next week.